It's fair to say that during the Peninsula War, sieges were not Wellington's forte. As we've already seen in previous episodes, Badajoz took three attempts to crack, and the attempt to capture Burgos in 1812 was a dismal failure. Today we're taking a brief look at another difficult and costly siege, that of San Sebastián in the summer of 1813. Hi guys and welcome back to the Redcoat History Show, the podcast and YouTube channel for military history geeks like me. Today I'm joined once again by historians Nick Lipscomb and Marcus Delapore Beresford to talk about the siege of San Sebastian, the port city in the northeast corner of Spain. It's a short episode but I felt it was important to cover this brutal fight before moving on to the final episode of my Peninsula War season. For more context on the background to this siege, you may want to listen to our previous episode, which picks up after the tremendous Allied victory at the Battle of Vitoria. In June 1813, as the Allied army under Wellington swept forward, the French left two well-defended fortresses to slow them down, Pamplona and San, San Sebastian. Wellington didn't have the resources to besiege both at the same time, so he decided to leave a force to blockade Pamplona while his siege train focused on battering and capturing San Sebastian. Here's Nick Lipscomb to explain more. He's faced with a choice. He's moving uh, his siege train around by sea, and therefore there's the first clue as to why he chooses San Sebastian and not an inland uh, location where he's got to move that very heavy, cumbersome siege train, all the ammunition, all the uh, stores, the siege stores. Um, but also, it's fair to say that San Sebastian sat on or very close to that Béon, shall say, that main artery that came through from the Western Pyrenees into Spain. And therefore, from his perspective, that was the location that he wanted to take first. That gave him uh, both an ingress, but also an egress route should he need it very, very quickly. And we also have to bear in mind, and we'll see this for the subsequent operations, Wellington always kept uh, either his left foot or his right foot near to or in the sea. And he did that because, of course, his Royal Navy or the Royal Navy, not his, but the Royal Navy had naval supremacy by this stage. Although it's fair to say that the French uh, conducted some extremely audacious operations in that right hand corner of the Bay of Biscay down there, uh, running the gauntlet. Uh, from Bayonne, Bordeaux, with small ships, gunboats into San Sebastian, even during uh, the period of the siege itself. But that's it's a point worth making as to why he blockades one and, and, uh, and besieges the other. In charge of the siege was General Sir Thomas Graham, that tough old fighting man who we met at Barossa in a previous episode of the show. His main strike force was the 5th Division, including, amongst others, the 3rd Royal Scots, the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 4th King's Own Regiment of Foot, and a Portuguese Brigade. One look at a map will show you that the city would not fall easily. It sits on a narrow peninsula that juts out into the Bay of Biscay, with the estuary of the River Urumea along its eastern walls. At the northern end of that peninsula is the ancient castle, which is perched on a high hill overlooking everything around, while the southern approach along the narrow isthmus was blocked by a strong defensive feature built by the French known as a hornwork. Now, sieges are complicated affairs with a jargon all of their own. My goal today is to keep the story simple and to move fast, so that's what I'm going to do. 
On the early morning of the 25th of July 1813, the first major assault went in. But despite blowing a large mine which took the French by surprise, it was a bloody failure. One of the problems with San Sebastian is it is a formidable fortress. And the only area that you can get some height over the walls, and these are formidable walls, is to go to the Chofre sand hills uh, to the, uh, the sort of southeast, because it's the only place you can put them. Um, and sand is not the best base for an extremely heavy siege gun. Every time you fire it, you have to reposition it. Um, and the whole idea of uh, siege warfare is that you should be able to uh, fire probably closer than 500 yards. The optimum would probably be 300 yards. These siege batteries are about 450, the closest ones to about 600 yards. And you've got to hit something on the wall about the size of an A4 piece of paper constantly. And you've got to batter and batter and cut. And what you do is you go from the, the parapet, the rampart, and you cut down. So some guns are on the right, some guns are on the left. The width is determined by well, you know, how many troops you want to get in. Uh, let's take it, um, uh, Theodore Rodrigo, it's 30 metres wide, the main breach, whereas the narrow breach was you know, five to eight, maybe 10 metres wide. So you decide how wide you're going to do this, and you some guns are firing on the right, hitting something the size of an A4 piece of paper constantly until that stonework starts to give, and you cut down and you stop about a metre, because you, you can only see so far, because the uh, the, um, the parapet will only allow, allow you to go a certain depth. And you stop probably about half a metre before you want to then cut across. And then the whole thing falls down as a slab. And that's what you want, because it falls into uh, the moat. And that's what your infantry go up. Now, the problem is that the um, side of uh, the the uh, the walls at San Sebastian um, they fall into the river, um, and uh, you know you it's extremely difficult to create the ramp that the infantry needed, uh, and this was the problem with the first siege is that the infantry were uh, given the green light to go. Um, I mean, it's also fair to say that Wellington didn't have a good track record with sieges, uh, not just Graham's fault. Um, and it was um, almost impossible for them to get in. Amongst those taking part in the attack was a man named James Hale of the 9th Regiment of Foot. He's left us with this brief account. Therefore, he says, on the 25th of July, we commenced the attack. But unfortunately, without success, for the breach was small and so steep that we found great difficulty in getting up. And the enemy continued pouring down their small shot and hand grenades from all quarters. But in spite of all, we forced our way in. But what was still more aggravating, when we had got possession of the breach, to our surprise, the enemy had thrown a large fire across the passage that led into the town, so that there was no possibility of getting any further. Therefore, all that we could do then was to get back as well as we could, which we did, but not without the loss of a great number of brave British soldiers. In particular, the 1st Royal Regiment of Foot, who were the greatest sufferers. End quote. With the failure of this assault came more bad news. That same day, Marshal Soult launched his own offensive. That was covered in the previous episode of the show. The siege of San Sebastien was temporarily abandoned while the Battle of the Pyrenees was fought. Marcus Beresford takes up the story. So the operations were suspended in San, against San Sebastian during Soult's offensive, and they weren't resumed until the 26th of August. 
and in, uh, that, that was assisted by more guns actually arriving from, from England. So the fifth division, I mean, I think under Graham uh, was weary at this stage. Um, there is some criticism of, of Graham's performance. Um, there's an assault then on the 31st of August. We've got a better siege train for the second siege. Uh, there's another breach created. There's a slightly more ordered way that the assault troops, first of all, the Fall on Hope, followed by the assault troops, and it's the assault troops that you hope are going to get in. The Fall on Hope is just to pull the fire from these muzzle-loaded weapons, um, hoping that they're all going to fire their weapons so that they're reloading when your assault party goes in. Of course, they, they know that trick, so they're not going to fall for it. But nonetheless, you're hoping that a vast majority of weapons have been fired when the Fall on Hope goes in. What Graham did with this better guns and a very capable uh, CRA, Commander Royal Artillery, Alexander Dixon, was to look at moving guns down the peninsula into what is now San Sebastian town area and providing a direct support uh, from howitzers and mortars um, uh, firing in the high angle and dropping down, therefore, into the fort uh, to assist the assaulting troops. I want to come back to that in a sec. Um, but also uh, the first use of what we would then go on to know as a creeping barrage was also used at the second siege. That is to say, the men weren't getting up these rocks and this the, these uh, this this detritus that had come out of the walls. They just were still stumbling to get up. The French, uh, again, very capable commander, Emmanuel Ray, he'd retrenched behind and his troops were firing and fighting and pushing back every single assault uh, in all four of the assault uh, locations. And it's at that point that uh, Dixon and Graham, uh, and we don't know who it was, thought about, well, you know, here we are, we're hitting this wall with these, you know, accuracy of an A4 piece of paper. Why don't we just keep the fire again, get the breaching batteries to fire again at the heads of the French, and that will enable our assault troops to move right up. And then we lift the fire and move a bit more and lift the fire and so on. And then the rest is history and they, uh, they got in. But in the process of using, going back to the other batteries, those batteries that were moved to assist them firing howitzer shells, uh, these um, had a sort of incendiary um, uh, type because they were either um, landing on the floor as shells and then exploding or they were airburst munitions. And the majority would have been used with these fuses that would, so the, the cannonball would have landed with a fuse uh, then burning, and then it would have exploded like a grenade on the ground. Well, of course, these set fire to great swathes of these wooden houses inside the town of San Sebastian. And that's what caused, um, you know, 90% of well, perhaps not as much as that, maybe 70% of the damage to the French. There is an argument uh, set fire to a number of buildings when they then withdrew a fighting withdrawal, then back into the fort itself. So it's an interesting set of sieges at San Sebastian. And I think Graham's troops did pretty well. Wellington famously said to Graham, you know, if you don't pull your finger out, I'll pull another division here. That's Wellington's way of actually getting the point over to the fifth division. This is your hour. This is your moment. You've got to get in, um, you know, because actually he would have done. If they'd have failed a second time, he would have put someone else there. Uh, but he's he wasn't going to do it at that point. You know, this was all to jivvy the 5th Division troops up to make sure that they got in second time round, which they did. 
And can I just interrupt quickly there with a follow-up question? You talked about the, the way they utilise their artillery almost with a sort of creeping barrage. Is that, is, is that literally the first... Uh, have we heard about that being used before or was that something they just came up with on the spot and, and it worked? Exactly that. Wow. Okay, well, I think, I think that says a lot about their tactical flexibility and their willingness to try new things in the heat of action. I, I think that's quite, quite. impressive. Quite. Yet again, James Hale of the 9th was present. He wrote, On the 31st of August, 1813, at about 10 o'clock in the morning, we began the grand attack. And having some knowledge of the mine that the enemy had prepared inside the breach, we were a little aware. Therefore, three false attempts were made in order to, to force the enemy to spring that mine. The two first attempts that we made were without effect, but the third we made more vigorous as if we were determined to enter, by which they sprung their mine. But fortunately, instead of catching us in that trap, they blew up a number of their own men, and immediately after the mine exploded we made a grand push and got full possession of the breach in a few minutes. And it was astonishing to see what a quantity of the enemy lay sprawling by the explosion of their mine. But we yet found something to do before we could get possession of the town. For the enemy had so blockaded the streets that we found great difficulty in making our way through. They had formed a sort of breastwork with barrels of sand across the streets in several places, which was a great disadvantage to us. For when we had drove them from one place, there was another before us. And they continued pouring down small shot on us from all quarters. But however... In spite of all their exertions, in about one hour we got full possession of the town, driving the enemy to the castle." End quote. So there's considerable pillaging and destruction. It probably wasn't deliberate, as some Spanish commentators suggested, that the British wanted to destroy San Sebastian uh, as, a, as a trading port. Uh, I, I suspect that's not right. Um, but the 5th Division did suffer huge losses, including many officers. And I think there was a lack of officers to control the men when they got inside the town. And that's referred to by General Hay. And, um, you know, th there's no doubt there was widespread destruction. Um, Shaman, who, uh, the co commissary, who goes there later on in the, in the autumn, in November, uh, says the place is absolutely desolate, even at that stage, uh, and a scene of, of, of horrendous uh, destruction. But the fight still wasn't over. The castle remained in French hands. The great Peninsula War historian and veteran of the war, William Napier, explains what happened next. Wellington arrived the day after the assault. Regular approaches could not be carried up the steep naked rock. He doubted the power of vertical fire and ordered batteries to be formed on the captured works of the town, intending to breach the enemy's remaining lines of defence and then storm the Orgulo. Meanwhile, seeing the Santa Teresa would enable the French to sally by the rampart on the left of the Allies, he composed his first line with a few troops strongly barricaded and placed a supporting body in the marketplace with strong reserves on the high curtain and flank ramparts. But from the convent, which was actually in the town, the enemy killed many of the besiegers, and when after several days it was assaulted, they set the lower parts on fire and retired by a communication made from the roof to a ramp on the hill behind. All this time the flames were licking up the houses and the Orgulo was overwhelmed with a vertical fire of shells. On the 3rd of September the governor was summoned but his resolution was not to be shaken and the vertical fire was therefore continued day and night. 
the British prisoners suffered as well as the enemy, for the officer commanding in the castle, irritated by the misery of the garrison, cruelly refused to let the unfortunate captives make trenches to cover themselves. The French also complained that their wounded and sick men lying in an empty magazine with a black flag flying and having the English prisoners in their red uniforms placed around to strengthen the claim of humanity were fired upon. Guns for the new batteries were now brought from the Chauffres across the Uramea at first by night, but the difficulty of struggling with the water in darkness induced the transport by day and within reach of the French batteries, which, however, did not fire. The flaming houses impeded the works, but the ruins furnished cover for marksmen to gall the French and the guns on Santa Clara were augmented and worked by seamen. With the besieged ammunition was scarce, the horrible vertical fire subdued their energy and the besiegers laboured freely until the 8th. Then 59 heavy pieces opened at once from the island, the isthmus, the hornwork and the chauffres, and in two hours the mirador and queen's battery were broken. The French fire extinguished, the hill torn and furrowed in a frightful manner, the bread ovens were destroyed, a magazine exploded and the castle, small and crowded with men, was overlaid with descending shells. Then the governor, proudly bending to fate, surrendered. On the ninth, this brave man and his heroic garrison reduced to one-third of their original number and leaving 500 wounded behind them in the hospital, marched out with the honours of war. The Spanish flag was hoisted under a salute of 21 guns and the siege terminated after 63 days open trenches, precisely when the tempestuous season then beginning to vex the coast would have rendered a continuance of the sea blockade impossible. And so the route is now clear and all the roads lead to France. In the next episode of the podcast, we will follow Wellington and his men as they cross the Pyrenees Mountains and take on the powerful French on their home soil. It's an epic struggle and one you won't want to miss as we finally wrap up the narrative of the Peninsula War. A special thanks again to Nick Lipscomb and Marcus Berriford, great guys, both of whom have excellent books on the conflict that I've linked to in the description in case you want to purchase them. I also highly recommend you sign up for my mailing list via redcoathistory.com. If you do that, you receive a free copy of my book on the Anglo-Zulu War. Until next time, keep your powder dry, enjoy your grog, but keep your hands off the local girls. You don't want to get in trouble with the sergeant major. Cheers, guys.